0: People of God, we are here today returning after a week apart. Maybe we've gotten together some throughout the week. But it is that we are here together Sabbath to Sabbath, Lord's Day to Lord's Day. And that's actually the title of today's sermon, From Sabbath to Sabbath. And we will see that today as we look. At our passage, I want us to remember and recognize in our lives that time is ordered by the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. It's not ordered in any other way, it is ordered in that way. And that is to say, we need to come together every single week and be reoriented first to God, then to one another, and then to the world. Let us ask God to bless the preaching of his word today. Our God and our Father, we come humbly before you. We thank you of the gift of your word. Lord, open up our eyes, help us to see, help us to understand, and help us to live the truths in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here today, we're going, to be doing, we're going to be studying from Luke chapter 13, and we're actually going to do verses 10 through 35, and this actual passage comes between two Sabbath days, and you'll see this when we begin. So we will start right now at Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, and this is what it says. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called to her, her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. Now, It's really interesting when you look at this passage and consider a couple of things here. First of all, again, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's in the place of weekly worship on the Lord's Day. And Jesus comes in, and as he's there, he's teaching. And he sees that there was a woman who's had a sickness, a challenge, a difficulty, and was bent over and could not raise herself up. If you've ever been sick with something debilitating that has changed you and you couldn't raise yourself up or you couldn't do something you could do before, it's a humbling experience. Is it not? And for 18 years, she'd been humbled, not able to straighten herself up. And Jesus, as he normally does, has compassion. And he calls her to him, and he says with such mercy, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and what happens? Immediately, immediately, she was made straight. And after God touched her and she was made straight, what did she do? She glorified God. And we often do that. We glorify God when God answers our prayer and He makes us straight. And of course, He makes us straight not only sometimes physically, but certainly spiritually. When we confess our sins, He forgives us and He straightens us out. That's part of this coming together on Lord's Day. And worshiping and hearing God's Word and God straightens us, makes us straight. We should go forth and glorify God. But let us, of course, remember last week's warning about having success, doing well, and having our fill, and then forgetting that God has brought us out of slavery, to sin, to wickedness, and from death. Let us glorify God. Now, something is really interesting going on here. It says this, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. And he says, man, there's six days a week with which men ought to work. Now, here, here's the thing. Who, does he, who is he rebuking here? He is not rebuking Jesus. He's not doing that at all. It says this. He said to the crowd. You see, he didn't want to take on Jesus. He was upset that the crowd was giving Jesus attention. This ruler felt that his position was challenged. This ruler in the synagogue, his position was to divvy up the work of worship and who was going to do what, and he was the organizer. And here, the Son of the Living God is present, and he is concerned with his position. He's concerned with where he was. In society in the church society you know this is the overall problem that we see over and over again when you see Jesus start his uh, ministry he's always in this rebuking them of you're supposed to be the people of God and serving others but you care too much that you're the special people of God and not serving the world It is interesting to see that he is so concerned that he, he dislikes the fact this woman is healed because it somehow takes away from his position. Let us see what our Lord responds. And it says, the Lord, and by the way, I want to point this out. Of course, it's the Lord Jesus. But this word, kurios, Lord here, Why did he use that? Why didn't he just say, and Jesus said? Well, we're talking about the ruler of the synagogue. He had one attitude. And here, the word says that God's word tells us not just Jesus, but they gave Jesus' position, Lord. And the Lord responded. So there there is this underlying current. It's always been from the beginning. Who is Lord? Is it Jesus? Or is it the political powers? Is it the church powers? Remember when we went back to to looking at John's rebuke to all of Israel? Right before that, it names specifically who the leaders of the land were and who the leaders of the church were. And then there's the rebuke. And here we see this. Clearly, there's this contrast. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all his adversaries, those are those who are set against him, we're put to shame. You know, it's interesting when you look at this word shame, it's, it's one who suffers repulse or one who, whom some hope has been deceived. This person had their hope in their position. Their life was built around who they thought they were, and they wanted their position so much that they did not want to acknowledge Jesus. But what was the response of the people? It says this, And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. We go on, and of course these things are all tied together. These passages, a lot of times we have this, this approach to the scriptures. We see the paragraphs, we see the, the, the subtitle headings. And we, we we don't recognize that there's a continuous story arc going on. We study the scriptures and and the way of the scientific method is how can we divide, you know, study something, and then we gotta make it smaller and divide it again and divide it again and divide it again. And sometimes you can divide something so much that you miss the greater thing that God is teaching us. And you'll see that here in just a minute. Because as we look at these next several passages, um, you, you'll see that, wait a minute, that's not really how I've, I've always thought about that or approached that. And here we see God talking about his kingdom, beginning with the parable of the mustard seed. Then he, that is Jesus, said, What is the kingdom of God like? And, what, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches, a bush that was growing. Now, we think about the, the, this tiny mustard seed. Anybody ever seen a mustard seed? It's very, very, very small. And you plant it in, and it grows, and, and Jesus calls it a tree, It's a tree, comparatively speaking, to all the other herbs that are there. And yes, birds, in fact, can nest in it. And this is important. Because if you were a person of Israel and you were listening to this, to Jesus speaking, and you think, okay, he's talking about the seed growing and this little seed is growing and it's making a bush and birds are coming in to this tree... Where else in Scripture do I see trees and birds? If we look at Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And he was very troubled by it. And we see this uh, beginning in chapter 4 in verse 19. And it says this, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let this dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. He's like, this is so bad, I wish it was for those that oppose you. Daniel goes on to say to King Nebuchadnezzar this, The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, and whose height reached to the heavens, which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and it reaches the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And here is the rest of this. And insomuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let them graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. So... If again the hearer of Jesus and he's thinking about okay, something's being planted, it's small, but then the birds are, are are being blessed and they have a place to rest. And I think back in scriptures and I and I know that that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And there were birds resting in the tree. And when you think about that, this is about judgment. It's about pride, it's about thinking that all that has gone on and all that has happened is about you and daniel warns nebuchadnezzar in verse 27 of daniel chapter 4 therefore o king let my advice be acceptable to you break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity this was judgment and of course what was the lesson that jesus was trying to drive in Children, you know this story. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He ends up humbled, loses his mind, runs around as a wild beast for seven years until he acknowledges that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God over all and it is he who has elevated him. See, this this little seed, this mustard seed, God is saying, listen... You are the tree. You're going to be chopped down. And a little tiny seed from that, because remember what is, it, what is in, in this story with Nebuchadnezzar? There's going to be a stump, and out of that stump, something's going to grow. One little piece will grow. Jesus is calling for their repentance. We see again in Ezekiel chapter 17, we see this. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. And I will crop off from the topmost of, it, of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on the high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Again, in this passage, you see that God says, I'm going to take a piece. I'm going to take one bough. I'm going to take one little piece of this great tree, and I'm going to plant it, and it's going to become... The tree with which all the birds find rest. All the birds dwell in. Jesus is speaking judgment towards the people of Israel. And he's calling them to repent. And he's always offering mercy. Because just like in Daniel, there was an offer for mercy. Repent of your sins. Jesus kept telling them, repent, turn. Returning back to Luke chapter 13, there's another parable there. It's the parable of the leaven. Beginning in verse 20, it says, And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. When you look at this passage, you know, a lot of times we've heard, you know, well, the leaven was bad and it was not so. The point was, when they removed the leaven coming to Passover, was to have a new start. You remove the old leaven because you couldn't have bread all the rest of the year unless you had yeast back in your house. It was get rid of the old yeast, thinking about, okay, we're we're repenting of our sins at Passover, right? The blood is covering us, and we're going to cast out the old, and we're going to start new again kind of like how we do a lot of times with our new year right we have these new year resolutions and whatever habits that you've been trying to get rid of you get to the first of the year and you say oh I want last year to be over and I want this year to be different I'm going to cast out my old habits I'm going to put in new ones and by the way how much success do we have with that Now, some of you guys know that I go to the gym, and I like going to the gym. I have a good time there. Lord's bless I'm actually getting to know a lot of people there, Um, and I've I've come to enjoy working out, but you know, I I can still fall into getting lazy, not doing the hard work, so you know what I do every week? I have an opportunity, and I go, and I have a, a trainer that I get with. And that trainer says, You're not doing that quite right. Step it up. And he even sometimes goes, Yeah, that was a good job. He encourages me, he helps me do it better. Right? And then what else happens? I'm in that gym and I'm working out, and I and I look over there and I see one of the other guys that's real healthy, or one of the other trainers working out, and I look over and I see him and I, I look at how he's doing that particular machine or exercise. I think, ooh, I gotta adjust myself. Right? People of God, how do do you actually get change in your life? You need habits. You need your daily routines. But you need to have somebody, right, coming together. Someone teaching you, encouraging you, correcting you when when you're slacking off. Coming to church and then you look around and you see one another and you're encouraged. Or maybe you see... One day I was sitting on a piece of machinery and I was doing it and this elderly, I elderly, older person sitting next to me on the machine next to me asked why I was doing that machine and I explained, well, my chiropractor said I needed to warm up better and I should use that machine. He actually comes to that gym. And you know, sometimes now I come out and I can't get on that particular machine because guess who's sitting on that machine? My, My point is, we need each other. If you want exact change, you have to have a new start. Cast out the old, but get with the people of God. There is a new start in Christ. These parables are allegories of Israel's history first, but they show us patterns of God's work through all ages. We see similar patterns in the church. Here we see the centrality of faith. Two forms of faith, patience and that which we do not believe with our senses. Patience is a tiny seed that grows slowly. Think about that, that mustard seed. And the second, the leaven is mixed and it doesn't work right away. If you've ever baked before, you don't just put the yeast in and then you throw it in the oven. No. No. You put the yeast in, you work it through, that takes some time. And then you put it in the bowl or the the pan, whatever, and then you cover it with a towel. And then you stick it in, in the oven and you just let it sit there. It takes time. It takes time. We need to recognize that God's word is true. We need to trust God's word more than we perceive. The mustard bush is the center of the world. And the leaven will leaven the whole loaf. What is Jesus saying here? He is reminding us that all the nations will be discipled. Look at Isaiah 11, verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in, my, in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Habakkuk chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Remember this, what is the sea? The sea is always representative, the typology is always the Gentiles and the Gentile world. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the sea. The nations will be discipled, and it starts with something small. And a lot of times, you know, we live in the modern age. We microwave stuff, we go to the restaurant, and look, these days, we push a few buttons on our phone and we, then we get in line and our food is ready like that. We're all instant. We think everything should happen in five minutes. And we say God is not at work because it's not instant. No, God is at work. We must believe God's word. Stay steady on with God's word. The next passage is about the narrow way and the narrow way is really about post-millennial thinking which so was the last portion of scripture but if we go again luke chapter 13 and verse 22 and he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying towards jerusalem remember that ever since the transfiguration it says that jesus has set his face to jerusalem what is happening from sabbath to sabbath he is going to jerusalem that's where he is headed. Then one, of, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Now this passage is often misunderstood as to who will be saved on the last day. I know that's the, the understanding I had had a good deal of my life. Like, man, there's such a limited atonement. Well, there is limited atonement, but... It gets its, its momentum. It grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Remember our passages covering the knowledge of the Lord will cover the sea? That was the passage right before. And it says this, as we look at this. But when you consider the judgment that Jesus had been communicating in the previous passage, this is not a question about the last day, but rather from the coming judgment. Consider Luke chapter 3. Again, I'm referencing back to John and his rebuke. This is John preaching to the people. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then he said to the, mult- to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees." Think back to what we were just talking about. Those trees, Daniel chapter 4 being chopped down or that little branch being cut off and being planted. Consider the passage of the competitive ruler in the synagogue. And his concerns he thought so much of himself he was great because he was this ruler and he wanted to maintain his power he did not want to acknowledge the lord jesus or our god and father and jesus said this strive to enter through the narrow gate for many i say to you will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where, uh, uh, where you are from. And they will say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Again, we have this tendency to take a lot of passages. We cut them up, we pull them out, and we say, well, this fits right for us. In this particular case, it does not start as some metaphorical thing in the future. We certainly can use this principle to warn churchgoers or Christians not to merely have a habit that appear or have habits that appear godly, but rather to serve God in all areas of our lives. Loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. But that is not the crux of what's happening here. Again, remember, Jesus is focused on what? The cross. That's the pinnacle of all time. That's how we measure time. When Jesus dies at the cross, the old is cast out and the new has come. Jesus goes on in verse 27. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from depart from me all you workers of iniquity and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and when you say, see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out." And then it doesn't just leave it right there it says listen the judgments coming this person is asking who, who's gonna be kept back from this judgment and Jesus is saying just a few those that repent, those that submit to God and his word, not keeping to their own agendas. But Jesus goes on. He doesn't just leave it right there, bringing that. He says, they, in verse 29, they will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are at last, excuse me, and indeed there are last who will be first, And there are first who will be last. Here it is again, Jesus pointing towards the nations being discipled. He was trying to tell them, listen, you think you're first, but God is reaching out to the very ends of the earth, bringing in all the peoples from every direction. And those who you thought were the least, God is going to raise them up. And those of you who won't repent, you will be not only last but cut out as we continue on and we look at this this time period between the two Lord's days we see this it says this it talks about Herod the Fox it says on that very day some Pharisees came this again is Luke chapter 13 and verse 31 on that very day some Pharisees came saying to him get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you and he said to them Go tell that fox. Go tell that fox. Now this is not Herod the Great, but a particularly weak and worrisome leader. This is not the one who thought so much of himself that he was going to go out and kill babies because he's a tyrant. Now, this guy, he was afraid. He was afraid of the the, the prophet John the Baptist. And until he got in a position where he couldn't get out of his words, he wasn't going to kill the prophet. He was afraid to do that. But what is a fox? I know some of you guys have chickens. You guys got to protect your chickens from the fox. Now this is going to become more relevant, I think, here in a minute, but I, I want us to understand that a fox is sneaky, conniving. That is, if you look at this this Herod, he is sneaky and conniving. Killed his brother so he could take his wife. Did all kinds of things that that were politically expedient for himself. And you'll see that again as far as Herod when it comes to Jesus at his trial. But you know, this reminds us of another time that a fox fox is brought up during the time of reestablishment. If we go to Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, it reads this But so it happened when Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that he he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren of the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of the rubbish, the stones that are burned? Remember in Nehemiah, Nehemiah and the people have gone back and they are reestablishing the covenant from what? A small twig. The church is being reestablished. And they are building it. And look at this. In verse 3 of Nehemiah it says this. Now Tobiah... The Ammonite was beside him, that's beside Sambalit, and said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall. So even though the Lord is establishing something new, even someone is conniving as Herod, that fox, if he gets up and tries to destroy it, it's not going to fall. That passage in Nehemiah goes on here. O our God, for we are despised, turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out for before you, for they have provoked you to anger before their builders. They call out, Nehemiah and the people of Israel there, they call out that their enemies, those that are conniving against them, to be destroyed. And it says, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had mind to work. Verse 7, now this is important. Keep working with me here. Now it happened that when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became angry and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. That's exactly what we see happening. They start the people of Israel, both the politicians and the religious leaders, begin to conspire in any way they can to keep Jesus from his mission. But it doesn't end there if we want to continue to look at this passage. It says this in verse 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set our watch against them day and night. You know, Jesus had a plan. He had something to do. He kept his face uh, turned towards Jerusalem. And again, back to our passage in Luke 13, what does Jesus say about this fox, about this guy who's trying to undermine him that may be rising up against him? He says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today. Now, in casting out demons, he is demonstrating... His authority over the principalities and powers. And when he performs cures, he is demonstrating his authority over physical bodies and people. And it says this, and tomorrow, in the third day, I shall be perfected. That is to say, that word perfected there means to bring to the end the goal that is proposed, to carry through completely, to accomplish, to finish, to bring it to an end. He knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, that it is going to be the end of his body as we know it. He's going to be resurrected and he will be complete the task that God has laid before him even though someone like this may be coming against him. In verse 33 it says this, Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. You know, prophets are killed in Jerusalem. Jesus knows where he's headed. We see in Nehemiah that prayer before God when the people came together in repentance. Immediately following this, we see that they are in the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now this is interesting because after they finish building the wall, they bring God's word out. They hear it read. They fall into repentance. And then it says, it points out, they're in the right month. As they hear it, all of a sudden they realize, when they have reestablished everything from this little twig, that they're in the seventh month. And then as they listen more, they repent. And then they say, wait, well, what are we supposed to be doing? They hear that in the seventh month that they're supposed to do something. It says they were to be at the Feast of Tabernacles. That is, from that small remnant, God called them up and reestablished them as the people of God. That's what the Feast of the Tabernacles is about. It's about coming before God, ascending into His presence and being in His presence and rejoicing and feasting. We can see that in Nehemiah chapter 9. It is such a blessing. And it says this at the end of chapter 9. It says, So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted in themselves and in God's great goodness. And it's so interesting. If you continue on and you read that, it references back in that teaching that Nehemiah is giving. He gives a narrative and it says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs, talking about their history, and killed your prophets. God reminds us in this passage in Nehemiah that when you kill the prophets, when you reject God, when you're unrepentant, when you have your will and you're just striving to to complete your will and not God's will, that you will do things that you never thought would happen. I guarantee you, 150 years ago, nobody imagined that in America we would, as a culture, kill Millions and millions of babies in the womb. That would have been unthinkable. It never starts that way. It is small compromises of not believing God's word. And eventually you end up at something so hideous nobody could imagine killing a prophet. But that's what happens. Here we then see, if we return back to our passage in Luke that Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Again, Luke 13, beginning in verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I had wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, when you think about this, all these narratives I've been pointing back to, right? There was, God sent these prophets to to reorient and call the people of Israel to repentance. And what happened? They rejected him. They wanted to worship God on their own terms. And they let that go so long that they began to kill the prophets of God. And God brought destruction upon them. And he didn't just do it overnight. In some cases, it took generations of the calling of the repentance, the calling of the repentance, the calling of the repentance. And then the enemies came to the gate, and they had a small repentance, and God gave them a small reprieve. But then, oh, we got reprieved. Well, we're going to go back to doing it our way. And then God did bring that judgment. And then he took them out of the land. Many died he took them away, and then when he brought them back, and he reestablished with a small group, and it grew again. Did they learn their lesson? No. And Jerusalem's the center of all of this. You know, in Psalm ninety-one we see this, let us listen to God's word here. He who dwells in the secret place of the most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. And what does it say in Psalm 91 verse four? He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by the day, nor the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near to you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have not made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Because you have made the Lord who is your refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near you or your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, Therefore, I will deliver him. Now we know at that very end, we know that's talking about Jesus, right? So Jesus is going to go all the way to Calvary and die for us. And he knows that he can get there. God's will is going to be done. But even before that, there's this message. He'll cover you with his feathers, and under his wings, you will take refuge. There are stories of mother hens. When a barn catches fire or a hen house catches fire, where it burns up, and there's roast chicken. But if you lift her up, you lift up her carcass, underneath her are little baby chicks that survived the fire. And I would tell you this that here in this psalm god is saying yes i'm establishing you and if you take refuge under me you will be part of the new beginning and we'll see this here finally we come to this in in luke 35 or 13 verse 35 see your house is left to you desolate and assuredly i say to you You shall not see me until the time comes when you said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, what is all of this? We really need to have humility and repentance. We can look at these things and know and understand what God is doing, what he is teaching us. I want us to understand this by simply Hearing how God loves us, his forgiveness is for us, let us consider Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are my God of my salvation on you I wait daily believe God's word teach ask God to teach you his paths verse 6 remember O Lord your tender mercies and your loving kindness for they are from old do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions according to your mercy remember me for your goodness sake O Lord remember this he's taking you out of your sin just like he took the people of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt, he has delivered you from the slavery of your sin. Turn to his word. Believe his word. I would say to you today, if we look at the very end, if we look at verse 16 and, and verse 25, or excuse me, chapter 25 of Psalms, it says this, Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive my sins. At the very end in verse 22, it says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of their troubles. People of God, His forgiveness is there. If you've been with me this week, you might have have heard me say this. But in the, in the hymn, O 4,000 Tongues, I used to be befuddled about that verse that said, He breaks the power of canceled sin. Listen. God has delivered us out of our sin. He's broken the power of it. But why do we need to be reminded of it in a song like that? Because we think we're still slaves. Repent. See what his word is saying believe his word, live his word. And remember, orient yourself to being in God's house with God's people every week. Jesus, this whole passage that we went through here, it's from Sabbath to Sabbath. If you look at Luke chapter 14, verse 1, Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely two things there. Jesus was ordering his life from Sabbath to Sabbath. And so these concepts, all of that just happened in a week. Those discussions, those talks, they were all connected. And what's happening? The enemies of God, they are watching Jesus closely, and yet they cannot see and they cannot hear. People of God, let us see and hear what the Lord is saying. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your word to call us to repentance, to straighten us up, and that even in judgment, your mercies are available to us. We thank you that through Jesus, you have made peace with us. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.